Good morning, church. Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Jude, verses 8 through 10 and 16 through 19. Starting with 8 through 10. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. And now June, uh, Jude 16 through 19. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that we can handle it rightly and truly, and that, uh, Lord, that you'll open up our hearts, that we'll hear what you have to say to each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A little buzzy, huh? Do I keep going? Yeah, yeah, why not? All right, good. Um, some might have heard about an uh, interesting incident that happened at the uh, Philadelphia Phillies game, the baseball, and uh, I think it was in September. They refused entrance to a fan who came with their emotional support animal, and it created kind of a bit of an issue. Um, now, it turns out the emotional support animal was an alligator. Um, his name is uh, Wally the emotional support alligator. This is true. And uh, you can see he's on a little leash there, and he, that's the Philadelphia Stadium behind him. I don't know about you, but I would love to hug an alligator like that. This is like, I saw this picture and said, now I have one of my bucket lists has now just been added, <laughs> embracing and walking around with an emotional support alligator. I don't want the real thing out there. I want one that's, you know, emotionally supportive to me. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I actually, you know, I find my own rabbit very emotionally supportive for me when I'm stressed out. And I, I actually, I don't begrudge people. Yeah, I actually, I kind of like that we have a lot of grace for folks who feel, you know, supported in different situations by animals and pets. And I kind of like that. But I think this is a great example of, I think, what happens many times is when there's a, I don't know if it's intrinsic to the nature of grace or intrinsic to the nat nature of people, but we seem to take advantage of grace often, don't we? They think like something would be really a really nice thing if they want to help folks. And then someone says, well, okay, well, then I'll take an alligator to a baseball game. <laughs> You're thinking, really? I don't think so. But uh, 
I bring that up with the idea of the abusing grace to our message today as we continue in the book of Jude. The little one chapter book this is the third sermon out of four and uh, this little um, series, which we're calling Keep the Faith, as he was exhorting you know, the people, as he's writing to, to contend for the faith, to fight for their faith, which was um, being threatened. And one of the key ideas is people have come in who were more than simply, you know, taking advantage of grace, as they would say they were perverting grace itself in such a way that it was undermining their faith itself. And so that much of that is a key piece of the, to the letter. And what we want to talk today is about is what, what, in what way were they perverting grace? And why is it so important? How does that undermine our faith to do that? So first we'll, we'll uh, deal with a, a fairly difficult text, that's why I get Ken here. I go, Ken, this is kind of a tough one. You want to read this? <laughs> so, yeah, it's like only certain people want to go, what am I reading? You know, Ken, Ken can handle it. And because uh, <laughs> Jude has some pretty weird stuff. And so um, we'll deal with that tech stuff. But then I think actually the stuff that was going on is actually remarkably, um, almost specifically applicable into our culture today in many ways we think. So I think it's actually really helpful. But then I think just as important, though, is that we have a view of grace that actually, believe it or not, involves a temptation to do things we shouldn't, a temptation to take advantage if we want to understand grace right. So first, what's happening in Jude, what these guys were doing and teaching, and then ultimately how it applies to us. So, twisting grace. So to remind you, Jude 4 I use a lot because it kind of sets the stage for the whole letter and kind of gives the whole context. You know, he says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend or fight for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why? Because certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, this is a big theme, this is not a surprise, um, have secretly slipped in among you. So these are people in the church. They are ungodly people who do what? They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So today we want to talk about what exactly is that, what did they do? You know, it's in there. And part of this we can understand, perverting the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And immorality, I know, what's that, what does that word mean exactly? I mean, and the, K, the King James uses lasciviousness. Lasciviousness? How do you pronounce it? Lasciviousness. All right, good. I'm glad they changed that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, 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 it implies a sensuality, uh, the phrase, the Greek phrase there. But the idea that you pervert the grace of God, you can see somewhat here, the idea of the grace where God, you know, you know, God takes us to himself and loves us not based on our actions, but actually despite them, right? He loves us as we are. He forgives us. He cleanses us. It's not based on works, right? And so the idea that people take advantage of that grace and say, well, gosh, if God forgives me for all I do and he loves me despite what I do, then what does it matter what I do? You know, and I go, I'll do what I want. You can understand. And this is like a, this is an age old. This is not something just in 2006. This is a perpetual problem that loops back and forth. There was one tradition in the church, I think it was, I don't know, maybe 800,000 years ago, where they used to, people used to wait to be baptized until just on their deathbed so they can do everything beforehand and get it all washed away. You know, or it's just like, again, a twisting of the nature of grace and forgiveness and, and a pouring out of God's love to redeem us, right? He redeems us to a different life, not to go back into it. But this is, this is one of the key problems. And in so doing, it denies Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. 
this is an important idea because um, these people were not denying him in word, right? They were in the midst. They were clearly confessing Jesus as Lord. But in their lives and what they were doing, he says they were actually denying it. And you see, they actually use a double word there. That seems unnecessary. Sovereign and Lord, essentially kind of synonyms. Um, you know, the same idea of the Lord is like the master. But one of the ideas is that this could be for a couple of reasons, just for emphasis on one point, you know, who is his sovereignty over us. And he was our boss and our Lord. But there's also an idea in which the Lord was that they, they took that term master in Greek and used it for the name of God of the Old Testament. So the Lord. And so it could be also, in one sense, his title, Jesus Lord. But the key is the idea that in, in what you're doing, you're actually denying that he is your master, even though you're in the midst and confessing it. You're confessing him as Lord, but you're not living him as Lord. So what exactly were they doing? So we're going to look down in verse 8. And, and um, Jude does everything in threes. If you remember that, like, a, you know, he talks about these three condemnations. He talks about, you know, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Talking, you know, says Egypt, the, the angels, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He likes threes. Doesn't mean that all of reality happens in threes, but these are, he also talks about their sins in threes. And uh, here he says, here's what they did in the very same way, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. These dreamers, they pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Here's your one, two, three. And we're going to handle them in reverse order um, because do the most confusing one to, I, to the more, most straightforward one. So let's start with the confusing one. Slander celestial beings. That's a good one, huh? What does that mean? Um, the word celestial beings, by the way, is uh, just the Greek is, is it's a glory, you know, which is kind of an interesting term. And I think most commentators say they're talking about these kind of beings who have this glory and spiritual beings. And he gives, uh, and just before we kind of attack that a little bit more, he kind of gives an example here of what that is. And he gives this example. It says, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Um, yet these men speak abusively, but what they do not understand. Now, if you're reading this thing right now, you're probably thinking, huh, where is that in the Bible? And if you're not thinking that, you need to read your Bible more. Because that is surely not in the Bible. <laughs> Moses is in the Bible. Archangel Michael in the, in the Bible from Daniel. But this story is not. This, um, we don't know specifically, but it seems to be from this old, uh, old writing, The Assumption of Moses. Uh, which, but this is from the milieu of all these Jewish writings at the time, and Jude is borrowing into that. And I talked about that last week, because one of the weird parts about Jude, and one of the reasons so many people avoid the book of Jude, is that's three of these kind of things. Three of these non-biblical references kind of from Jewish tradition. And again, we talked a lot about last week, and I don't want to make a big argument about it. He's taking it from the milieu. He's not necessarily saying these are even biblical stories or not. He's using them as illustrations, and none of his arguments or anything he says really hinges on any of them. But again, I don't want to, two weeks in a row, continue to talk about the weird stuff in Jude. We got one week on weird stuff. But again, the main point that he's trying to draw here is not so hard. Even the archangel, like even a, one of the most spiritual authority, if you want to say it, you know, the head of, you know, the angelic thing, even he who would seem to have the most authority to be able to rebuke the devil, even he defers to God, that he does not show that kind of arrogance on that. And he's saying, but these guys do. 
these guys put themselves to speak you know, abusively and speak with such level of authority and aggressive. They, they go, they, they speak abusively about what they do not even understand. And you might think, well, what? this is kind of weird talking about the spiritual realm, but you actually see other references of this kind of thing in the New Testament. Um, again, just to bring them up, uh, you know, for instance, in Acts 19, it said some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. They gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And, you know, you see this kind of presumption of spiritual authority, this presumption to walk in there when they don't really have that. You know, that's, there's a bit of that kind of thing. You can see in Revelation, too, just because this is the day we're just going to go over all the weird passages. That'll be good. All right. You know, it says, it's the church in Thyatira. Again, this is to the church. He says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, this is the Jezebel's teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. But you get a sense of the kind of milieu of people in the church and the kind of stuff they're speaking about. They're speaking about this special spiritual knowledge they have and this special understanding of the spiritual realm of Satan and demons and the power they're exerting there. And here they're being here, Jude's rebuking them, saying these guys walk out, they don't know what they're talking about. And they're kind of like, it says these dreamers do this. So they come down with all these spiritual visions and these spiritual ideas. And you might be saying, some of you might be going, what on earth? Was that weird 2,000 years ago? People still do this kind of stuff. You know, honestly, if you, it's the different circles around, you know, folks take, you know, are, can be very, you know, um, what do you say, a lack of humility, a real thing, you know, shining off about the things they say and they've seen and take authority where they shouldn't and speak, you know, presumptuously and uh, abusively even about these kind of things. But I think sometimes, you know, but as I say that, I say there's an opposite error we need to be afraid of too, is that's to underestimate these things. You know, to almost act as if there is no spiritual world, there are no demonic forces, there is no sin, there is nothing happening in the spiritual realm, and we have no authority in those realms. You know, but the Bible would say very definitely our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against, you know, the powers, uh, dark forces of evil in the spiritual realm, and that we, there is a place where we stand up there and authority God gives us in those places, which is a proper authority, which we are to take. But he says, these guys, folks, are, are in this different realm where they are just, you know, they are speaking in ways they shouldn't and speaking with a level. Of, and, you can, and some of the other ways you could really get a feel for what these guys are like. This idea they're rejecting authority uh, kind of relates to this. This is probably, you know, people in the church and the traditional teachings and the people who are in charge. And you can kind of see it. They're kind of blowing them off and saying about how great they are and how smart they are. I mean, this is a good line. You know, these men are grumblers. They're fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. I don't know about you, but I read a, I read a thing like this, and I think, yeah, I, I know this type. You know, you know these kind of, oh, they're this bad, bad, you know, the grumbling about the people who are in charge, so they seeing kind of talking dirty, throwing dirt down there, boasting about themselves, complimenting people to get their favor, you know, which is kind of a sneaky way to get, you know, people's authority, you say, you compliment. So these are the kind of folks they are, right? This rejecting authority. There are these, these dreamers who have all these incredible, we know better than everybody else does. Uh, and then the third thing they do, which again is the most direct, but in some ways the most controversial, uh, it says these dreamers pollute their own bodies. 
And, uh, and you can see in the same way to go, what is that? What's the previous thing? It's the Sodom and Gomorrah example. It says where Sodom and Gomorrah surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And they dreamers, you know, pollute their own bodies. And so they're talking about sexual sin here and sensuality. They're not specific as to what they are, but it's uh, general stuff. And you can see from the top of the letter that this was a you know, big issue. Pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and sensuality. Um, <clears throat> so, and this is, you know, they're kind of saying that, you know, if I have this grace from God, he forgives it. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. And the scriptures are very different with that. You know, we're embodied creatures. You know, our physical lives, our sexual lives matter to God. And, uh, and they're important, they matter, they, they affect how we live. And this is what it's speaking to. These folks would come into the teaching and say, it doesn't matter what you do. And so that's what was going on. Um, and it, it likens them like this. It says, these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. The things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. And he likens it to, you know, uh, essentially what you're doing when you're doing whatever you want to do. It's like you're an animal, you know, and people don't have to do what animals do. So, um, but then at the end of the letter, he kind of sums them up, I think, in a real a good way. He says, um, dear friends, but remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. It's just nothing new. You know, people scoffers following their desires. These are men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So, um, and this idea of not having the spirit is an interesting statement in itself. You know, it could be a statement, you know, because there's both an, a kind of an objective and a subjective level to the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. They're saying in one sense, you know, you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, and he might be saying these folks are not real believers. They really don't have the spirit of God in them. But I think there's also a, a qualitative element to which we're called to walk with the spirit. You know, we're called to, you know, as opposed to walking according to the flesh. And we're called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's an idea in which... The extent to which you are filled with the Spirit of God, you are in a sense, you know, in touch with God and walking with God and filling Him. So you're called to that life. Um, and these guys are not that. You know, by their very lives themselves, they're showing that they are not having in a relationship with God. They're not walking with Him, even though they're talking a good game. Um, and they're following mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. So I think. Um, uh, as we talk about what this comes into our culture right now, you can see this idea of uh, talking about this idea of desires, right? Natural instinct, desires. It talks about evil desires. Keeps on hitting this idea of this natural instinct versus um, you say that's not being under the lordship of Jesus. And uh, that's a pretty, I, I would say that's probably pretty counter to modern doctrine, wouldn't you say? Modern secular doctrine, you know. And uh, gosh, everyone looks so uncomfortable. Oh my gosh, talking about sex. It's like, it's all right, you know, come on. You know, be adults here. What's that? You're not uncomfortable, that's good. Sandy is not uncomfortable. <laughs> I just want to announce that to everyone online. She's not uncomfortable with this conversation. <laughs> you gotta laugh a little when you talk about this stuff. Um, can, yeah, so. Yeah, I know it's always like pop. I, my temptation to pop off is constant. I have to. Right? <laughs> um, 
but this idea that, you know, this following your desires, right? You know, we're, what, what's, what's the doctrine now in our secular, kind of our secular doctrine? You know, your, your desires are critical to your very identity, to your being, to your transcendence, to your self-actualization. You know, you need to follow your desires to be fully who you truly are, you know, essentially. And, um, and it just the scriptures would say that's not a good approach. <laughs> you know, that your desires actually, and it's not that your desires are bad, but your desires actually have to be shaped and they, and they have to be, you know, and we're also broken and they mess us up sometimes. And, you know, they need to be taught like anything else. I mean, you talk to people with substance abuse issues, talking about things like that, and they have no, there, there's no argument with them going, hi, your desires will lead you astray. They're like, yes, and they have. And I need, what was that? <laughs> the heavens opened up, listen to me, you know. <laughs> Sounds of heaven come down to us. That was beautiful. But, uh, but you, I mean, people with substance abuse kind of issues who fall, I mean, people have trashed their lives with this doctrine so many times all over the place. And we know with kids, my gosh, you know, we know naturally part of maturing, it's not even just that it's broken, but, you know, kids will run out, you know, you have to perpetually tell kids, don't do what you want. <laughs> you know, it's like, hi, if you all do what you want, by the way, you won't be able to do it together because you'll just clash and explode into a giant war. You know, you can't, ice cream is not good all day long. It's good at the right time. The idea that you have to, part of growing and part of maturing is learning to say your desires have a place. And they have to be trained and taught. Um, they're not to be, and to use the word here, they're not to be your master. Right? Your desires are not your master. They are your servant. And they're to serve you for the blessing by which God has made it. And that's one of the huge things that, you know, that's kind of a thing that we don't understand. You know, that... Um, and I, again, I don't think this is radical. It's kind of obvious. We know this. You know, your desires always say, you say, so it's kind of a strange thing. We bring it in and say, no, no, suddenly your desires are the key. But they're not, you know. But desires are good, too. And you, and you always enter in relationships that you have to, you know, in some sense, you get married. And you have to then shape your desire and go, yeah, your desire is a good thing. It's actually a powerful thing that actually takes two people and makes them one. But your desire should only be for your spouse. That's the only way you should actualize. And that doesn't mean like, oh, you'll never have desires for something else. I don't know, people who are single here, let me just tell you, when you magic, you get married, there's no like magical thing that goes, woo, only desire there. No. But you master your desire. And you decide what you're going to do with that. You know, and you train it in a sense. You know? Um, so with all that kind of talking about it, there's an unspoken kind of presupposition, isn't there? There's, a, there's an, an objection that I think is really critical. And if you don't understand this objection, probably you're missing it because this is like the central objection that's unsaid. Sometimes it's said, but the unsaid one is that somehow if I do that, God's God or whatever it is, is not, it's repressing me. And that my true good, you know, my, my true good what am I doing? Ah. My true good is being withheld from me. You know, essentially, there's something really good. My life would be better. What is really good is being, is being withheld from me, right? And to say quite literally, that is the oldest temptation in the book. This is actually one of the few times you can actually say that phrase, and it's 100% accurate. The book being the Bible, it is the oldest temptation. This is the garden, right? Essentially, what was the garden temptation? God says, don't eat from that tree, but really, you should want to eat from that tree. 
you know, because that will give you something that you really want, and for some reason, God's withholding that from you. You know, that God does not have what's look out for best, and what's even the language that was used, and it was desirous to the eye. You know, it was desirous to have. I wanted that. They told me why I wanted to have it, and I'm being, and that was the nature of the temptation. There's something good out there that, you know, I'm not supposed to get. And keep in mind, that's, a, you know, the stuff that's happening in the garden there, that's paradigmatic, right, of all, and I just use that word because I want to sound intelligent. It's paradigmatic, it's five syllables. I get one of those words every sermon. It's the idea that it, it's a type of all things. You know, that that kind of temptation is a type of all temptation. So that's why it's so good to recognize that, that, that oftentimes when we don't, you know, we feel like God's withholding something good from us. That I, if I do it, and that's the, the nature of temptation, they eventually took from it. They didn't trust God. They instead said, no, this is the better way to get people. I mean, running after desires, you see broken people all over the place as a result. Um, and the, the key idea is that God actually wants us to flourish. He's not looking to repress us. He's not looking to stop us. All his ways. He wants to see us. How do we, he wants to set us free. That's the language, ironically is that we can be free to be all that we were created to be, free to know the blessings. He would say folks who are trapped in substance abuse are actually, even though they're free to obey their desires, they're actually slaves. They're unfree, they harm themselves. You're actually trying to set yourself free by being able to say no to something, which is ironic, because you think that's not free. But it says, no, actually you are free. Uh, you know, Psalm 19, I think, beautifully talks about God's word, not in a way which is like this oppressive, difficult way, talking about the laws of God. It says the precepts of the Lord are right. What do they do? They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord, they're radiant. They give light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure and endures forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warmed and warned and keeping them is great reward. And the idea that God is trying to set us free to you know, live this life he's made for us. But you say, but who can discern their errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. And the idea, so implied in this is no sense of perfection. No sense you're going to be able to carry all this stuff out. Even though you can believe that God's ways are the right ways, we still struggle to do them. And he says, this stuff, I don't even know what's going on. But here's the key line. It says, keep yourself from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And there's a key biblical concept. When something becomes your master. It's not that you never sin. Does that make sense? It's not that you never blow it. It's not sitting on this condemnation. But the line the scripture makes and says the real dangerous line is when these sins or whatever become your masters. And, they be, and you begin to obey them. And I keep going back to substance abuse because you mentioned place of promise. That's a classic thing. They grasp that because they go... These are my masters, and that's what I obey. My desire to get high or desire to get that thing, I obey that, and it wreaks havoc on my life. You need to transfer to an obedience to serving God. What happened essentially to these people in the midst of their, you know, what's happening in that Jude's writing to is that they're having a mastery problem. You know, they deny sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. They deny who their master is by their life and their action. You know, you, Jesus wants to set you free. You know, he wants, and when he is our master, we can follow him. So, having said all that, um, there's a very important idea. Because you can, you can twist and abuse grace in an opposite way, too, can't you? Because what's the temptation when we look at all this going, oh, gosh, 
You know how the best way to do this? Is just set up a life with a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of laws and all this legalism and just set up, I gotta do this and can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, because then I'm gonna please God. And actually that denies grace as well, because you don't need grace. It all just becomes about stuff you do. God loves me because of what I do. And that is not grace. And that's why, what, what temptation is there with a bunch of rules? Grace has an intrinsic temptation because it's so radical. I mean, look, look what it says, you know, to, this is the, the, the benediction, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So what is that? Wait, wait, without fault when I'm a good person? Without fault when, I, when I'm careful the way I live my life? Does that, does that even seem like he's advocating a careful life? He's advocating an uncareful life. <laughs> he is advocating a radical freedom where he says, hey, don't worry about stumbling because I'll pick you up and wash you off and get you right there and you'll be great. So you just run. Because you think oftentimes you go like, oh, gosh, I don't want to blow it. I don't want to blow it. I don't want to blow what God has for me. I'm like walking on this little terrible like, thing like there, and he advocates something thoroughly different. He says, run, and I can keep you from falling, and I will take you no matter what happens, and I will put you before that, wash clean, not just and without fault and with great joy. There's no, I barely made it, you know? I barely got it. So this is, this is the radical idea of grace. You know, I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Do you think that you deserve forgiveness? If you do, you are not a Christian. The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. You know, he, he has it further going, grace at the beginning, grace at the end, grace, 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 grace. He basically says, unless you've been accused of being um, a libertarian or something, of taking too much liberty by grace. If you never are on the edge of taking too much liberty, he says you never have embraced grace. So grace has in it an intrinsic risk to what these guys did, right, with it. That they abused it and they twisted it because because God does not take us out of, and he doesn't clean us up out of the mud so we can go wallow in the mud. He actually takes us out of the water so that we can go live in that castle he has for us. And this new life he has, he wants to set us free. Grace is meant to transform us. You know, so it's not something to take abuse of, but if you really understand the freedom God wants you to have in your life, you're going to be walking that edge. <laughs> you know, because you need to understand that God doesn't condemn you. He's not looking to condemn you. He's not looking to repress you. He's not looking to control you. He's looking to bless you and set you free to be all that he has made you to be. There's intrinsic risk with that. And that's okay. We can live risky lives because he's able to keep us from stumbling and he's able to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, we thank you that you speak to us and that uh, I too, even as I speak, am just a, a flawed follower of you trying to follow you. And thank you, Lord, that we can speak and we can act and uh, even differ with boldness in uh, believing in your incredible grace you have for us. And bless us all and help us to uh, be able to open our lives to you, to forgive us our hidden faults, keep us from willful sins. May they not 
rule over us. Indeed, as that psalm says, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And in Jesus' name we pray.